All right, let's go. All right, so today we're starting our the last three classes where we're going to cover takings broadly uh, defined. The first element of that is today, which is to discuss the government's eminent domain power. Uh, what, if any, are the limits to that? And then uh, what, what do we mean when we say just compensation? Those are the two concepts we're going to look at today. All right? Administrative or other questions before we move along? All right. Good to see it's plenty cold in here. Uh, all right, so we're going to do intro to takings, and we have two cases to do today. The Kilo case, which probably a lot of you have already heard of, uh, and then the U.S. versus Miller case, which deals with some of the more interesting issues surrounding uh, just compensation. Okay? So takings generally, right? So the, the idea here is that there's a limit uh, on the, the government uh, to, uh, in the U.S. Constitution uh, nor shall private property be taken without just compensation, right? So that language establishes uh, the limits uh, such that there are uh, to what the, the federal government can do with respect to takings uh, of private property um, from citizens. Why does this, one question is a, a, to start off the bat in case there's any confusion, Fifth Amendment, of course, is in the U.S. Constitution, applies to the federal government's powers. Why are we always talking about states in this context? Okay. It doesn't have the same, but it has a due process clause, which by interpretation is has incorporates uh, elements of the Fifth Amendment as well, right? So... So for that reason, this equally applies to the states uh, in the same force, so both to the federal government and the states. Uh, and, and note, of course, that when we're talking about sort of states, we, we include municipalities and local governments as organs of the state. So very often it's those bodies themselves, uh, local municipalities, that are the ones who are actually doing uh, the takings, uh, and that is because they've been delegated that authority uh, to do so. So where does this authority to take property come from? I mean, obviously, if you're a local city, you're getting that authority delegated to you from the state, from the, the, the state of Pennsylvania or whatever. But why is there that authority at all? Like, who, who says? Anyone? I thought it went back to the public trust doctrine in that the land Right, so British has a, they have a different system, of course, where the, the theory there, the underlying theory there is that everything is owned by the crown and every, and from there all rights are derived. So, so maybe, so your argument would be we have a similar system here? Sure, we certainly have have principles in common. Any other ideas? Where does this come from? This basic authority to take somebody's property. Maybe this necessity. Like there are unique commentaries of public people using the government's able to do so. Okay. 
Yeah, sort of, there is nobody else sort of argument. So somebody has to be ultimately uh, in charge of this authority. So who else? Yeah, that's that's good. Maybe like a social contract doctrine in which um, you're, in order to be a member of the society, you need to give up certain rights, including naming the rights of your property in exchange for what the government. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something like that. Yeah. Didn't some of it come from housing militias? Like the, the whole need and necessity to, to be able to seize, seize properties? Well, well, we can talk about the need and necessity in a minute, the policies of why we might want to do it. I'm just asking for the underlying authority. Like, what, what gives the government the authority? I mean, in England, it's an easier question because the basic authority resides with the crown in all cases. But why in the U.S.? We don't really have a, a crown. What is it? Um, could it be part of, like, the police power of the state to take property if it's inflicting harm on the public? Sure, I mean, but the, so where does the authority come from? Just from police power that's inherent in the state. Good, something inherent. Yeah, I mean, so what most people say is this is just the inherent right of sovereignty, right? So if you're going to have a state, uh, a government, a, a controlling authority, then you're going to have to vest in it some of these uh, uh, powers, and among them is, is the power to take private property. Now, that's different from saying that you can take it, how you can take it, when you can take it, and so forth, and we can talk about that. But the basic right, the basic idea that we should have the sovereign be allowed to take property is sort of an inherent right, right? And again, that can be delegated, and it often is delegated from state governments down to local municipalities, uh, and in and about half the states, it's in fact delegated to whom? Yeah, and how does that work? That if they have to use it through necessity or something, then they have to compensate the person they took it. Exactly. About half the states have a version of what, what might be called private eminent domain, where following a set of procedures, they can, in effect, get eminent domain. Uh, usually it's in the landlocked cases, right? And where you, if you're landlocked and you need uh, a, a way to connect yourself to a road or, or other thoroughfare, and so uh, you can use these doctrines. Right? So, so it can be delegated, but the ultimate authority is sort of an inherent uh, power. Right? So why do we do this? Well, we've already heard a lot of this. It's maybe necessity, uh, maybe part of our social compact that you, in order to have a functioning state that's going to provide the rules that protect property, you're going to give up a little bit of the rights uh, that you would have at least as to against that state. Any economic reasons? people like breathing on their hands trying to keep warm. Yeah. Wouldn't it be inefficient because there are a lot of landowners who resist to give up property, so it's just easier for the state to just come and take it? Exactly, right. Well, easier and cheaper. And why do we care about cheaper? So it reduces transaction cost for sure, if I can just take it. But if we, why would governments particularly want to get it cheaper? Or why would we as a policy want to keep the cost down? Why not say, oh, you know, if the government's taking it, make them bear that transaction cost? I guess it's a monopoly. Well, it does, and that's what creates the, the transaction costs, potential holdout costs and things. And why is a why, I mean, we don't think that's 
that terrible if it was just you and me, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't use sort of the power of the state to break that up. So why in the cases of the government do we say we need to have this special power to take the property? Right, exactly, right? So it, it doesn't make a ton of sense to use public money to break sort of these transaction costs. We want to maximize uh, efficiency, which in these cases probably means lower the overall cost to the government. Uh, and yes, very often the government is going to be in the position in these cases of uh, being uh, uh, potentially held up, right? If you're trying to build a road or a railroad, for example, uh, there's any number of the landowners can block the road uh, from its intended path, and each of those individual landowners are going to potentially have incentives to play strategically or to hold out for higher rents or whatever. Um, and so the, the, the idea is we're going to give this power to the governments to avoid those sorts of, of costs. Okay? So how can we call it a compromise? How can it be viewed as a compromise? Justine. The government's not just taking it. They're paying the landowner for the land. Exactly, right? I mean, you could, you could have two different kinds of rules, right? One could be they just can take whatever they want or they can take nothing at all, and we don't do either one of those. What we say is you can take whatever you want, uh, but you have to pay, right? You have to pay for it, and so that, in a sense, is the compromise. So you are supposed to be compensated for the takings uh, that occur, which then allows the government, in some sense, it forces the government to internalize the costs of whatever project. So if, if the government is going to build a new highway, uh, we want the government to internalize the cost of putting the highway through um, uh, a particularly uh, high-value area town versus lower value. When we were talking about easements, we said that in the U.S. we have, uh, this is bad, I don't know which kind of easement it is, but we have an easement like, that was designed for the railroads so that they would be able to... A pertinent. Yeah. Um, so they would be able to come through and maintain them. Why did we permit that to be easement as opposed to being eminent domain? Well, we would prefer to have private, particularly when it's there. That was a private. I mean, railroads were a private project, right? They were funded by the uh, companies themselves, and so they didn't. Uh, we didn't have. Well, maybe in this day and age, you might use the Kilo case to get these projects done. But at that point, I think there was a more limited view of public use, and so they were required to use the easement uh, power and negotiate to get to get these easements. I think in some cases they did use them, but not all that many back then. They Primarily easements. I mean, it, that's, you know, easements are basically a private version of that, but it requires a negotiation, obviously. Okay? Okay. Questions, comments? So, isn't this going to be incredibly damaging to what we've talked about all semester in, in property, which is we want people to have incentives to invest, uh, to build their property, to develop their property, make it higher value. If you thought the government was going to come in and take it, uh, then you presumably wouldn't do that, right? And why isn't that, why isn't that pretty damaging? Okay. Well, I think that you were saying that because they have to compensate it, they're, because the government's going to have to internalize the cost, so if you build up your land, like if you build it up to um, a better use or it's worth more, then it's less likely that the government's going to take it. Okay, so one is, it might, but, it, but it's going, you're going to be compensated if you do raise the value, right? Yeah, so you're not going to be completely washed out if they decide to take it. And then you can maybe use the same economic rationale for adverse possession as well, where all the land is turning into discount because the government can come and take it. So 
you're paying less than you otherwise would have if the government couldn't take it. Good point, right? Maybe you bought it for less in the first place because of the, the looming threat, as Justice O'Connor would say, uh, of, of condemnation. So that's, that's keeping all the prices down so you benefited as well as uh, have the potential harm uh, from uh, the potential taking. Jared? Well, I don't think that people are always feel like they're, they're uh, compensated for it, but it happens so rarely that I don't think that it's something that people really worry about when they're investing in properties. They don't think, oh, well, I'm going to buy this. Unless it's an area that you know is being developed in such a way that they might. But that's, I think it's very rare compared Right. So so the idea is it's a, it's a power that doesn't get used very much. And so therefore, even if in the margins it might dampen your enthusiasm for investment, it shouldn't have that much effect because by and large, you aren't going to be impacted. Right. Good. Good. Now the question is whether if it becomes more widespread, if that might change. Right. And that's part of the, the Kilo case. Um, so 1498 is a uh, 28 U.S.C. 1498 is a version of the eminent domain power in the, in the context of patent rights. Right. It basically gives the right uh, for um, uh, the U.S. government to. Uh, infringe patents and there there's and in, in exchange for paying compensation right um, this has uh, been used once um, to my knowledge not actually well was used during during World War two but in modern times been been used once uh, in 2001 there was a, as you probably do remember a anthrax scare Right, and so the U.S. government decided it was going to purchase several hundred million doses of anybody remember the drug, Cipro, right? So Cipro, which turned out at the time to be the only known uh, uh, treatment for anthrax poisoning, uh, and Bayer, the patent holder, um, said, "Fine, it'll be five bucks a dose or whatever it was, the, the then going retail price." Uh, and uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services at that time, Tommy Thompson, apparently went into a meeting and said, uh, if you don't drop it to around 10 cents a dose, uh, we're going to just authorize uh, somebody else to make it, uh, and, and you won't have any ability to stop us. We'll pay you compensation, but you know you won't get $5 a dose. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, I think the, the final deal was something like 25 cents a dose. Um, so, so that's it's you know in that sense they didn't actually have to use it. Just the threat of that brought the the price down. Um, anyone have any predictions about what happened to research on drugs that would be good against bioweapons? <laughs> predictions? Completely, almost completely disappeared. Right. So why would you make a antidote to uh, anthrax or um, uh, even? Uh, strains of uh, flu, uh, if you thought that the very time when that drug was going to be valuable, the government was very likely to take it. So it's turned out that that has cost the government a lot of money because in order to do the research on these medicines, which we actually do want to do research on, uh, the government has to pay uh, people to do it. Um, so anyway, just a side note on, on how this might work in, in action in terms of the reliance interest. Okay, questions? Yeah, so it's very hard. You'd get just, it'd be a battle of the experts, right? You'd get experts who came in and would say, you know, for drugs similar to this, the markup is 25 per, you know, it's whatever, five times manufacturing cost. That's usually something like what drug 
markups are, and, and others would say, oh, it's only two times or something. But yeah. The, I mean, there is a strong suspicion, and one of the reasons that eminent domain power is so uh, controversial is that there's a very strong suspicion that the just compensation is not enough. Right? Why? Why do you think that that just seems... There's an intuition that fair compensation just is undercompensating. Right. So if you're talking about the percentage period of property where you can pay market value rent, that's not necessarily the property owner Good. Right. So what is what are we missing? So we're missing sort of a personhood value, a subjective value. Those kinds of things are not going to be incorporated into uh, a um, into a, a fair market value analysis. Anything else? The bargaining power problem. So um, if the buyer has significant power in setting the price, um, you can guess that the, that the seller is going to kind of come out a little bit short. Sure. Yeah, although in theory, we should be able to, right, courts should be able to figure that out. But of course, I mean, I think that, that one of the things your question points out is, that even trying to come up with what we would call fair market value is pretty bizarre, right? Because this is not a fair trade. The government's taking your stuff, right? You don't. It's not fair. You're not. The seller's not trying to put it into the market. Right. Like that. It's not. It wasn't for sale. That's the whole point that they took it from you. So to say that this is what you would sell it for is a little bit silly, right? Because it's not, in fact, what you want. So we're required to do a bunch of other analyses uh, to figure out what it's really worth. I guess just building off of that, you're probably not being compensated. Have to get up and leave. Like sometimes people pay more if you be out in ninety days. Good, like, sure. Yeah, good. So there's other potential costs uh, that might be uh, you, you might incur just from having to move that they're probably not going to be factored in. Yeah. Uh, I don't really trust anyone who's buying something who doesn't have any guess of what it's worth. I mean, I mean, in theory, it's a federal judge, right? So you think that's going to work out? Good. Yeah, I mean, presumably you would have an opportunity to present your own sort of testimony, but again, you know, nobody really knows what the answer is. I think when we were talking about implied warranty of habitability and D.C., the case with the property in D.C., the market for housing doesn't actually function efficiently at times, and there's this concept of the timing of it, because the market for housing now, I mean, that would just give the government... Sure. Yeah, if you were in the government right now, you'd start taking a lot of homes, right? <laughs> Costs are low, let's do, do some projects. And they are, to some degree, right? So, sure. Yeah, so because there's so much timing, it could be that your compensation is very much at the whim of whatever the current market conditions are, even very localized market conditions. You mean if the entire market was was depressed? Sure, but are you being fully compensated? Even though, sure, your money can buy you an equivalent lot somewhere else. Is that what you would describe as a full compensation? I think Steve would say it's not full compensation because you thought you should get twice that amount. Even though, sure, your next house is cheaper. To me, with respect to that particular argument, it's one of the subjects. Okay. Okay. All right. I mean, you know, that's that's a, sort of an empirical question about how you feel about the what you mean by being compensated. Does compensation mean getting the 
value out of the property that you think you should be owed, or does it mean replacing that with an equivalent property, right? Those are sort of two different ways of thinking about what's fair. Rogers? Um, also, I think that in these situations, you're standing in front of a, a very large deal that's about to happen, and all of a sudden the property goes from being maybe not worth so much to being worth the buyer a great deal more than what fair market value is really. I mean, if you want to be really, if they didn't have that fair market Right. Now, of course, the Miller case tells us, and we'll get to that in a minute, that you probably don't get that run-up. Right. Right? You don't. That's the point. Yeah. Oh, so you think you think it seems like you're being undercompensated because, but you didn't do anything. It's not like you deserve that, right? You just happen to be lucky. Right. But, I mean, you know, you are being asked to leave. Yeah. Good. Sure. Oh, yeah. No, people will be very upset in these cases where they suddenly realize I'm sitting on a gold mine and then they, it turns out that, that they get the pre-planned pre value, which was a lot less. Right? I mean, this is really going to be, in a, in a psychological sense, a much more hurtful blow than if, people, than if they just come along and said, we'll give you whatever it's worth. Right? And just, I think, the correct point, you said that you could replace property with another piece, but I think contracts... You said that property is really seen as being unique. Uh, it's like a default assumption by, by property. So it's not like replacing a water bottle with a water bottle. Each piece of land is really distinct in some way or another. So it's not Sure. Exactly yeah, and we've talked about that a lot, which is, you know, there is, we do feel like there's these other values with respect to property that don't get fully captured by the, the sort of economic value of it. Right? Yeah. I don't think the valuation is that big of a problem. Okay. Sure, but for that, you're just, you know, it's not like you're valuing it for somebody to take it away from you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, you're right. We do, we have to value property all the time and even, you know, take into account subjective value. So you're saying that. In the tax context, we, we don't pay for that subjective value on a tax sense, so why should we get it in the eminent domain? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you're right in the sense that it is symmetric and that, that, that you're not, in either case, we're just putting a dollar value on it and it should be you know, it all should come out in the wash at some point. Um, but I think people would still feel like they have, that they're not being fully compensated. Yeah. Sort of building off what Steve touched on and kind of in line with uh, Justice O'Connor's dissent in that case. Mm -hmm. um, kind of uh, from the other angle, from the government's angle, um, undercompensation does not deter future undercompensation. So, okay. Right, right. So this is a good point, which is that, that if the land is indeed valued much more in the, in the post-development uh, context, then the government is in some sense getting a windfall 
uh, by being able to condemn it and get it at the pre-development price, and so therefore it, in some sense, incentivizes these sorts of activities, right? And so let's, I mean, let's go ahead and talk about the Kelo case, right? So there's probably not been a lot of recent Supreme Court cases that has generated the amount of, of discussion and, and actual legislation um, uh, as Kelo uh, has. And, and one of the interesting questions that we'll come back to at the end is, why? Like, what is it that's so surprising about this, right? So New London, Connecticut, anybody been to New London? I've been a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, all right, so it's an it's a industrial uh, town that has seen a lot of the industry leave, and so it's been in you know, economic hard times for some period of time. Um, uh, the main downtown here is, is a, has a, a major river and port, uh, and so this is the area in question, right? So the, this is the Fort Trumbull area. Uh, a couple of other photos that I was able to get uh, of what it looks like pretty much now. You can see there's a, there is a development here of some office space in this area. Um, but a lot of this tract here is, is, looks like this, pretty open uh, and yet undeveloped. Um, and so there was a master plan here, right? So the idea here is that the city of New London... Uh, was in uh, economic distress, uh, and so uh, uh, developed a master redevelopment plan. One component of that was to take this Fort Trumbull area uh, and redevelop it. Uh, in part, they were they were hoping to well, they did lure, and then they were hoping to expand on that uh, a major uh, factory and research and development um, uh, uh, part uh, or. or construction project by Pfizer um, and, and, and hoping to make it sort of a mixed-use uh, redevelopment project. Uh, there were homeowners uh, there who had lived there for a long time. Uh, and the case is about homeowners who held out, basically. They were, about, they were able to get about 100 lots uh, without having to use eminent domain. They just negotiated for a price, and the, and the development authorities simply purchased those, mostly with with uh, public money, uh, state money. Uh, there was a state grant that sort of funded all this. Why do you think they used, for the, most, the vast majority of the lots, they didn't even use eminent domain? They just bought. Justine? The area was so depressed, people would rather get something than nothing. Okay. So one is people were pretty eager to leave, and they happily accepted the, uh, the payment. So that's good. Yeah. Seems less offensive to take someone's property through the market rather than coming and saying, "I'm going to take this. How much do you want for it?" Yeah, to the extent it's possible, I would. It would seem preferable for the the redevelopment agency. The even though in theory it could go and get it by the eminent domain part, just didn't want to do that because uh, it just well, it's bad PR and it just seems more offensive. Uh, you'd also avoid all the litigation costs if you just bought all the land here. Right. Exactly. Right. So potential. You know, if people really fight it, fight the eminent domain proceeding, then you've got a bunch of litigation costs, and, and obviously that's that's to be avoided. Brittany? Um, this is sort of a lucky argument, but in the sense that if you feel like you're making a deal instead of the government just taking it, you feel like you have some sort of autonomy in the deal, and it's not like it was taken away from you, you're like, sure. I chose to do this, or I had some say in it. Yeah, exactly, and you could probably say that we would feel like those... Uh, uh, people who sold willingly actually got fully compensated, even though in the end they probably got about a quarter per acre is what Mrs. Kilo ended up getting in the, at the end of the day. So, uh, but they, they'll probably feel like they got what they wanted, right? 
um, uh, in part because they had this idea that they made the deal, right? All right, so this, this goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and the basic question is, is this allowed, right? Is it allowed for uh, the government to uh, take uh, land? And what was it going to do once it took the land? What was the idea? It had this redevelopment plan in mind, what was the ultimate plan? It's going to build, a, well, it was going to give it to Pfizer. Well, Pfizer had already built it, but it was actually going to do more for the rest of the land in the area. Similar, close to that, it was going to do what? Well, it was it was going to uh, provide like parks and, and other things for common kids. Some of it, but what was the big the big controversy here was? Was it going to like bring in jobs? And they said it's going to increase tax revenue. Well, that that was the sure. Now that's the what the benefit was, but what was the mechanism? How was this going to work? It was going to be used for commercial uses, so they're essentially taking private property and giving it to another private owner. Good. And that private owner was a real estate developer, right? So the, the land here, um, uh, some of it was going to go to Pfizer, but most of the land was going to a private developer. Um, uh, it was going to be sold, not real technically sold, it was going to be given a 99-year lease. Uh, anyone see how much that 99-year lease was going to cost the real estate developer? Dollar. $1. <laughs> right? So $1, 99-year lease. The developer was going to pay for the construction of buildings um, uh, and then would have the right to uh, make all profits on the rent uh, for the term of the lease. At the end of the 99 years, anything that was built on the land plus the land was going to revert back to the government. Right? That was the, the idea. Okay, so that's the question. The question is, is that an appropriate use of the eminent domain power of the government to take land from private landowners and essentially turn it over to other private landowners? And yes, as, as Jessica said, this idea was because uh, the overall development plan was, was uh, developed, was created to build jobs, increase the tax base, um, beautify the area, and so forth. It was economic development was the basis for this. Okay? And that is that is the constitutional question, is what do we mean by, uh, uh, well, what is the limit, if any, to the eminent domain power for uh, the federal government? Most of the opinions you read is really um, uh, sort of a debate over two prior cases, right? The Berman case and the Midkiff case, right? The Berman case is a case where there was a blighted area that was condemned in, in downtown Washington, D.C. and redeveloped um, uh, because it was, uh, and again, the, the findings were that it was causing uh, direct harm uh, to the areas surrounding it as well as the people who had to live in that area. So it was, again, a redevelopment plan, right? The Midkiff case is actually a fairly interesting uh, uh, exercise of the eminent domain authority, which is, um, Hawaii has this, this interesting set of problems with respect to uh, private property, which is because of the way the land was passed down um, from the people who lived there originally, um, the, most of uh, Hawaii, the Hawaiian land ownership is incredibly concentrated in a relatively small number of, of persons. Uh, anyone who's seen the, the Descendants movie knows that's like the major part, one of the major uh, plot lines in that movie. Hopefully you guys have all had time to see movies this fall. Um, <laughs> it also has a rule against perpetuities element to it, too. Uh, and uh, so the, the idea here was that, that 
Um, what most of these private landowners were doing was they would never actually sell their land. Instead, they would execute long leases. So it turns out that in Hawaii, um, uh, a disproportionate amount of people actually don't own the land on which their house sits. Uh, and so what the Midkiff, in the Midkiff case, what the state did uh, was essentially cut off for everyone who was leasing, uh, they basically converted a bunch of leases into fee simples. I essentially took the fee simple from uh, the lessor and turned it over to the lessee. Uh, and the, the reason for doing this was to rationalize the market for real estate uh, in Hawaii uh, because it had become uh, so concentrated, or it was so concentrated, to try and deconcentrate the market. Both of these were upheld. Okay? So the Supreme Court had upheld both of these in prior cases. And so now Kilo comes along with the redevelopment plan um, so in after Berman, uh, in, the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, that creates sort of a big, um, uh, well, a boom in, in a sense of these redevelopment plans, right? It really expands the way that cities and governments use uh, eminent domain to try and do wholesale uh, redevelopment projects, right? And the question is whether that had become uh, too broad. So here's how Kilo plays out, right? So you have... Four justices, Justice Stevens, Souter, uh, uh, and, and Breyer and Ginsburg, who say public use includes economic re revitalization, and it doesn't matter that property passes into private hands at the end of the day. Right? So whether or not it does is not the key thing. As long as there's a rational, again, you, you, you will see this test again, the rational basis um, uh, related to a legitimate state purpose, that that's going to be okay, and so they have a relatively, actually, very differential view, right? Um, you have a vigorous dissent uh, uh, on the part of Justice O'Connor, which is, this is, if not the last, one of the last opinions that she did right before she retired, uh, where she says, public use is reducing harm. You have to be showing that whatever you're doing is, measurable, is, is combating some sort of direct and measurable harm um, and that does, means that economic revitalization in and of itself is not an appropriate public use and therefore not within the eminent domain power. Um, uh, and then Justice Thomas, as he often does, had his own take on it uh, and said public use actually means public use, which means you either have to use it, use it for the public directly, meaning park, recreation, some sort of public activity, or the public, i.e. the government, has to actually have the property at the end. Um, uh, and, and we'll talk about his opinion in a minute. Now, and the, the opinion here, Justice Kennedy, uh, is a classic uh, Justice Kennedy opinion, uh, which seems calculated to be uh, uh, one that only he can figure out what it means. Um, <laughs> and, and he says, as long as there's a detailed and careful plan, he doesn't really describe what he would mean by that, uh, is the key to the case. Right? And we'll talk about how this all plays out. So this is how, how it works. Um, and so... Uh, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. So here's the Fifth Amendment language again. Right? Let's talk about this in sort of a, 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 a bit of uh, language detail. So why is public use really a limit on eminent domain? And the way they describe it, it, you can pretty much define anything as public use. Okay. No matter who's using it, if they are going to know, create some sort of economic good, then that benefits the public. If the public can spend time on it, like a park or road or something, it's public. So 
you can define it any way you want. Okay. Um, right. So so let's so that's I think so that would be your interpretation of the result of the case. But let's just look at just the language. Just, just the language. Set aside any understandings of what the law says. What do you think, Alex? Um, Right, so it seems entirely clear that you can't do a taking without paying, right? So the choice of for public use, like sort of by implication, means that um, that it's not a limitation in the same way that just compensation. Yeah, it would be odd, right? Because it seems like the natural way, if you were going to say that there were two, I mean, the way that everybody reads, or, or the common reading of the Fifth Amendment, this clause of the Fifth Amendment is, is that there are essentially two requirements. One is public use. Right? And two is compensation, right? So is that really true? And, and I think what you're pointing out is if they meant for there to be two requirements, they would have put the without, right? Without public use or and just compensation, right? right? That, assumed, that sort of shows or implies that they're on par, whereas the language doesn't. The language certainly doesn't seem to put them on par. Everybody see that? Like, what does it mean? And so, so this is, in part, um, part of Justice Thomas's opinion, which he says it must mean something, right? So why would they have it there at all? I think from the framers' perspective, there was no other legitimate reason that the government would ever be taking part of the property if it wasn't a public use. Then why put that in there? I mean, so that could be true, but that's, I mean, that's, that's what Justice Thomas says is they put the words in, so they must have meant it to mean something, because obviously if they meant it to mean what the majority means, they didn't have to put it in there at all, because as long as the government's doing it, it's going to be de facto public. Well, the president's not going to take your house because he wants to live there. After Kilo. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Sure, and so you would agree that the reason they put public use in there for some reason, right? Okay. Right? Not to get all too legal realism here or anything, uh, but the whatever they intended, circumstances change, they shift. The interpretation of this has to shift as a result. If we adhere to a facially literalist view of public use as in only for... Um, for highways, for direct government uses, the government would be very, very limited. It would not be practical. Well, no, it could just purchase, right? It could buy the house like from Mrs. Keeler. Like, like, like we're talking about, like the economic reasons, the holdout logic behind it. Sure. Well, it would certainly be limited from economic redevelopment and other projects that aren't directly related to public use. But I think Justice Thomas's response would be great, right? Then, then they won't do these sorts of projects, right? And then, or if they do, they'll have to pay pay whatever it costs. That's the argument, right? I mean, no, I think in the other side would be, well, no, we need to understand that the government needs more powers than that, and, and in order to get these projects done, the only practical way to do some of these large-scale redevelopment is to take all the land, or else it's never going to happen, right? Um, just 
feel that if you uh, look at just compensation as a requirement for public use, that that kind of leaves open uh, private use. Right. So maybe you don't have to pay if it's going to exactly. be for private use, right? Exactly. So by having public use as a requirement, I think it does set a limitation. It does limit what uh, is appropriate. Okay. Steve? I think by considering, when I read it, I consider private property and public use as the two images. They're juxtaposed to each other. So okay. it's, not, it's not private property. Private property inherently is private. Okay. So it sets a limit because it's anything that's not private use, it's public use. So right, so how do, how do then you feel about it being just turned over to a private real estate developer? I mean, is, are you with Justice Thomas who says that's an illegitimate, that means we're not, in fact, taking it for public use, we're taking it for private use? I, I would agree with that. I think the historical look of the Constitution, because I don't see the Constitution necessarily being meant to be flexible and interpreted as times change. I mean, there's definitely some things that I've read into it over time, but it's the Constitution. Sure. Um, somewhat stable. Okay. Okay. Lauren? Well, in some ways, I think looking at this phrase, you can read that the first clause of it as the definition of what eminent domain is. So, eminent domain is the taking of private property okay. in public use. And then, without just compensation, is the requirement imposed on Good. doing that. So, I almost read it as if it's not the taking of private property for public use, you're sort of outside the realm of eminent domain. And then the question is, Right, so you have to find other authority, and at that point, you probably wouldn't, but you might find things like regulation and taxes or something like that. Good. So, so with that, you would say that there is that public use doesn't really provide a limit. This is just a descriptive element of what this clause is supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, I guess then the question is, well, yeah, I mean, I think that you know, can't take out the element of a definition and still hold its meaning. So, okay. Yes, I don't think it's a limit. Right. All right, Brian. Well. Right. Do they? Do you think they would imagine then the the taking and then passing over to the redevelopment? No. So, and would you say that since they wouldn't imagine that, that's enough? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I agree with you. I think it's just silent on that issue. And, and, and with what uh, Lawrence said, I think that's, to me, it's like there's an idea. Well, I think you're not agreeing with him then, right? Because what Brandon is saying is this is an actual limit, and that you have to, in order to take it, you have to, it has to be for public use. And that his version of public use actually means public in some sense, not turn it over to a private party. Okay. I think it's it's there's an idea behind this this phrase, I think, in, in this definition of what eminent domain is, I think. And and that's the requirement is just compensation. That, that 
And so you, for in your view, is like like Lawrence, which is the only limit you see here is just you got to pay. Right. Okay. I think it's kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to talk about the framework's intent uh, in any kind of inflexible way. Uh, we're getting it over time, but even within their own time, they all had different intentions to hit on the states they were from, the backgrounds they came from, what public use that phrase might mean. Like you, you would have John Adams uh, probably would think it was more along the lines of a, of a stricter definition, whereas Jefferson uh, may be more along the lines of, well, sort of public welfare could be better. So even in that faction, then the founders would have different definitions. Maybe, although they all agreed on this language. It turns out that there's no, there's not a good set of evidence for what anybody actually thought this meant at the time, right? So we don't actually know very well, like, what specific people thought about what this would mean. Like, in many other clauses in the Constitution, we have a reasonable sense of that. But at least here, they probably didn't have the same thing in mind. Because, I mean, they were speaking the same words, but they had very different meanings. Maybe, or is it like what Brandon said and, and Kenneth said, that they had no conception, and Jaron said, it, they have no conception that people, that the government want to take your stuff and give it to somebody else. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's possible, too. That they just thought that was not a non-starter. Non Right. Okay. Yeah. You guys are going to all have fun next semester, right? This is this is this is a preview, right? No, I mean, you're, this is almost every phrase in the Constitution is of this variety, which is depending on how you read it, how strongly you adhere to what might or might not have been the underlying principles at the time it was drafted, um, is going to really. Uh, change the way that you interpret it, and this, you know, this is a five-four decision. There is no right answer as to what this is. It's just who had the votes on that given day. I guess we can all agree. That no, I don't think we can. But <laughs> I think we can agree that the framers of the Constitution were perhaps too economical in their use of language. I guess is what I would say. Or the other thing is, if there's a, I think it goes on the word nor. Because what's the what's what comes before? <laughs> yeah. what comes before? There is no opposite. You get an entire semester of that. <laughs> of what comes before the nor. Trust me. Yeah. All right. So so the uh, the case turns out that it's affirmed, right? So that the city of New London can indeed do this. This is within uh, the majority of the Supreme Court says within the scope of the eminent domain power. Uh, they do have to pay compensation, but, but it is within the scope of the public use, uh, whatever they, as they conceive of the public use requirement. The majority does think that there's a public use requirement, but that only establishes a rational basis uh, review, uh, which is, uh, again, a very deferential standard review to the, to the legislative body. Um, as the dissent points out, to some degree, everything that the federal government does is subject to rational basis review, so it's not clear how much bite public use really has at all, 
although the majority seems to think that there's some bite, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So a lot of states, right after Kilo, enacted post-Kilo changes. There was an enormous amount of controversy about this case. Why? I mean, especially when you look at the two other cases I gave you. I mean, it, it isn't really that different than Berman, right, which had been relatively uncontroversial. And Mitkiff seems to me to be much more, uh, you know, of a, if you talk about sort of taking somebody's property, I mean, just, you know, you lease it to somebody and then the government turns the lease into a fee simple. That seems more intrusive. Why did Kilo get so much, so many people going? Uh, well, from public opinion, uh, the person Berman, or which yeah. it was poor people, and people don't really pay them as much attention. Okay. Uh, and then the other one, no one's, no one actually had to move out of their house. It was a change in the title, but it was still, everyone stays where they're living, and right. so there's not that change right. in this. You know, it's a lady with a riverfront house. I mean, there's lots of rich people getting very upset at the idea of their riverfront house. Okay. Good. So different kinds of people affected here, uh, and it seemed like maybe more people could see themselves in the in Mrs. Kilo, for example. Yeah. Well, it just seems like a more common thing because the blight is still an issue that's common. People have that happen. Sure. People see a lot more social benefit of a bunch of row houses being knocked down as right. opposed to, you know. Okay. Good. Yeah, Ginny. I think that um, O'Connor was saying that in Berman and Midkiff. They were, um, the property was creating harmful effects, and here it wasn't. So it's kind of like saying it's okay to take someone's property even though they're putting it to good use. Right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's, well, and again, that's obviously, the majority didn't think so, right? The majority said this was necessary because the overall community was depressed, and so it was, in a sense, causing harm to have Mrs. Kilo using the house in that way, right? But Justice O'Connor, which... I mean, look, I think that Justice O'Connor pretty much causes the, the outcry, right? Because she writes this opinion where says, she says, who among us is using their property to the highest and best possible use, right? When suggesting that at any moment the government's going to knock on your door and take your property, which is a little overdramatic, right? I mean, that's, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, so that's, that, cause, that sort of emotional rhetoric really got people going, I think, in this case. Sharon? Good. Right. Good. So maybe that the actions of the it wasn't so clear that the city of New London had a real clear understanding of what was going to happen. It seemed a little arbitrary. Let's just take the land, give it to this developer, and hope for the best, sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And there's a particular public interest law firm, the Institute for Justice, which is incredibly media savvy and really sort of worked this uh, uh, to, to great effect over time and, and did, get, did get a lot of actual legislative changes. So a lot of states now have enacted post-kilo restrictions on their on municipalities' ability um, to take public use. Some states even specifically say you can't take um, property for purposes of economic redevelopment. 
Um, sometimes there are waivers in it or whatever, but, um, but some states have said that. Some have changed process elements, but it has resulted in a lot of actual on-the-ground legislative changes, uh, typically uh, in, the, in the direction of what Justice O'Connor was saying, which is a more restricted understanding of, of what public use actually is. Okay? Um, all right, so how did this actually uh, result in Mrs. Kilo's bargaining position? Right? So on uh, page 1243-44, it tells you the aftermath of what she got, right? So, um, so eventually... Well, first of all, so the, so the Supreme Court decides, which means the, the taking can go through, so title passes to the city. Mrs. Kilo, she doesn't leave, right? So she says, I'm not leaving, right? You're going to have to kick me out. So they, they, they start eviction proceedings, and, and she flips out, and, uh, and there's lots of media uh, hoopla about that, and the government intervenes and stops the eviction proceedings, uh, and this goes on for a couple years, uh, and eventually... Uh, at the sort of last possible moment, the city and Mrs. Kilo reach a settlement uh, whereby she leaves, uh, and she gets $442,000 of compensation, which included uh, the picking up of her house and moving it to another location. Um, and that, that probably if they just bought it for its actual retail value, it would have been around $120,000. So how does Mrs. Kilo lose and yet win? She was very media savvy, right? Those pictures of her standing in front of her house are, you know, that's a big deal, right? That's, that works. Sure. Yeah, she had a good story. The house looked sort of nice. It looked like, you know... Um, uh, a place a lot of people would live, and so for that reason, maybe it was just politically incredibly difficult. Even though they had, I mean, they won at the Supreme Court. There's no more, no more legislation, no more litigation that can save this, uh, and and yet they can't get her out, and they ultimately have to pay, you know, almost four times uh, value to to get her out. Steve, I think as much as you can disagree with the result of the case, how it affects her is that she benefited. Like you said, the Supreme Court came down with a ruling. That's the holding. There is no going back from that. And so the governor picks up the phone, and things just start going downhill from there. So she is going to win, I guess, economically, the system loses. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe the government has now been forced to internalize the, the costs of you know, kicking people out of their homes, right? I mean, maybe the whole compensation in some sense was achieved. So, yeah? So how do these work? So you could refuse to leave your house even if You can refuse after you stop paying rent. But they won't, like, I wouldn't advise it, but... <laughs> hmm? Like, I'm surprised, so you're not... Right, they own it, so she is essentially a non-paying tenant. So do you think that they, like, didn't, I guess, arrest her because the media was watching? Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, they kept sending her letters and tacking things on her door saying you're out, but they didn't want to send in the share. I mean, do you think that would have looked good to, like, but literally? They would have literally, and she said this several times, drag her from the house. Okay. 
kicking, I mean, literally kicking and screaming, and you know that they would have called the TV cameras for that, right? <laughs> so they just weren't going to go there. They just, uh, they weren't going to send the sheriffs. So they eventually ended up working out a deal. Um, I think there's a lot of Still wasn't worth it to her. Do you think even at the end? I mean, I, I can't really speak to that. I know yeah. that during the process, um, she came and spoke before she before this settlement deal. Okay. But she was basically like close to tears the entire time. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Nobody. I don't think anybody thinks that she wasn't totally genuine about her desire and her stated. I mean, she really, really. And there were other homeowners in that that track too. Really, it was their home, right? And then some of them have been there many generations. And so there's no question about sincerity. the The question is if we're going to have this this deal that says that in some cases when push comes to shove, the government gets the right to take your stuff and give you the fair value. You know, was you know. Did she get her fair value out of that? I mean, did it work? Did the system work in this case? I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I just think it's important to keep in mind okay. for us. Like, if it were your house, yeah, you would probably react. You know, maybe not like she did, but I think you'd be pretty much allowed to. Right. Yeah. Good. Excuse me, guys. Like, there are a lot of situations where people like the area around your house changes, and even if they decided to maybe build this thing around your house, I'm sure it wasn't even an option, they couldn't have been, they couldn't do it, but... Well, interestingly enough, they did, right? So there was a, as part of the redevelopment plan, there was a, a one building that they were going to leave, an existing building. Anyone see that? What building? It was a, anyone want to guess what that was? It was a private club that had been there for years. And anyone want to guess who frequented, they were members of that club? Well, Italians, yes, but <laughs> it was like the Italian club. No, you're right. But I, that's totally incidental to this. Anyone? Anyone want to guess who? Sorry, what? What? I don't think it was the mob. It was the it was the, the local the local leaders. Right, it turned out to be uh, many local politicians. I don't know. I'm not even going to mention whether that might be a correlation between the mob and local politicians. But um, in any event, it was a lot of local politicians and business leaders who belonged to this club. And the redevelopment plan actually uh, uh, excluded this. It, it, part of the deal they gave to the real estate developer was they had to leave this building intact. And in fact. Because the whole thing was under a floodplain, they were going to have to jack that building up to, to reach the new grading. So it doesn't seem entirely clear that they couldn't have carved out some exceptions. If you think that she would have wanted to have the house had it been like in between all that other stuff. Yeah, like, I don't know. Like, I don't yeah. Most of her neighbors sold. So it's really yeah. like they kind of sold her out because they all sold and then she was going to have a totally different 
landscape around her. I think at the end, like, I know she really wanted to keep this house, but it wasn't the house that she was originally wanted in the first place. And it's not something that she can control because it was her neighbor's property. It's not yeah. to control all the property around. So just, well, it's just, I don't know. It just seems to me like she wanted it to be like it was, and then everything changed, and she should, I don't know. So, so do you feel okay? Do you think the the system worked here? She ended up with you know an excess value, but probably that compensated her for some of her subjective. Oh yeah, and they got a lot less money. Right. Okay. Right. All right, last thought, and then we got to move on. Okay. Right. Yeah, most of it is still fallow. Yeah. Right. 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 Good. Yeah. Yeah. So as a legal matter, I mean, that's a, it's a good point, which is maybe, you know, maybe one of the reasons we want to have limits on public use is that governments aren't very good at this sort of thing, right? And it's just... Good. Okay. All right. So is Keeler really a move? I mean, is it worth all the hype? Is it is a is it a change beyond Berman or Midkiff? I mean, what, so what is the holding? I guess is the question here. What is the holding? So e obviously, economic redevelopment is okay, right? So is that it? Is that that the holding? You can do anything you want as long as you sort of point towards, you know, an economic redevelopment or other purpose. I think that a difference. Well, but the government says that the, the secondary effects are going to be better tax revenue, more jobs, and overall economic benefits. Good. Well, that's certainly what Justice O'Connor says. But the, the question is what the rule is. Like, what is, if you're a municipal government now, what can you do? Well, yes, I, I, my point is that the rule is different now because the public use... Um, oh, okay. So you say they've now expanded. Right. Okay. Maybe. Anyone? So how would you figure that out, just as a matter of, of legal principles? What are you going to look to? What are you going to... And do what? Assess if it's at a good level. Okay. Right, so you tell, you just, as the attorney for the municipality, you simply say to the staff, just write some stuff down that says that the property would be better in, in IKEA's hands and we'll be good. Is that enough? I think you have to, well, Justice Kennedy wants a careful detailed plan. Yeah, but does his <laughs> view matter? No. Why not? Because he's not a majority. Is that true? 
<laughs> no. No, think about it. No, no, if this is an important point. He is, in fact, the one that you would have to look at. This is the classic, this is why I said it's the classic Justice Kennedy opinion. Who provides the fifth vote? He does. Right? He does not join the majority. Right? He explicitly concurs, this is so Justice Kennedy, right? Which is, he's explicitly concurring, saying, I know it when I see it. And what do I see? I see a careful, detailed plan in this case. Doesn't mean every case is going to work out. How do I know? Ask me. I'll tell you next time. No, I'm dead serious. You're going to see this all next semester. He does this over and over and over again, which is he, he is very skillful at placing himself in that position where he's the swing, right? He could go either way, depending on whether he thought it was a detailed, careful plan. Uh, he either falls into the, into the left hand here or he falls into the right hand and says, no, it doesn't meet, the, it doesn't pass, and he's the only one, right? He's in this way in all kinds of major cases. I mean, it's part of, part of being a swing justice, but he's very good at writing opinions in this way. So if you were advising a municipality, the opinion you have to follow is the Kennedy opinion. So in that sense, I think a good reading of Kelo is it actually tightens the standard a little bit beyond Berman and Midkiff, right? Berman and Midkiff was just sort of made these general pronouncements about public use and yes, we had never explicitly said that economic redevelopment could be done, but neither did they ever require a detailed and careful plan. So in a lot of ways, I think the one reading of Kilo is that notwithstanding all of the screaming, it actually seems to tighten up the public use requirement slightly by requiring, at least according to Justice Kennedy, a, uh, a detailed plan. Right? So one question, we won't have really too much time for this, um, so we'll move beyond it. Um, uh, will, will we have uh, distributional consequences, right? And this is just an empirical debate between the two sides. On the one side, um, uh, the majority clearly thinks that by allowing um, a broad conception of public use, you're going to allow the government to engage in a lot of these redevelopment party, uh, projects, which is going to help society, help, and the primary beneficial, beneficiaries of a lot of these things will be uh, poor people, um, Will, uh, uh, on the other hand, Justice O'Connor says uh, that instead um, what's going to happen is that because of the politics, um, uh, the government's going to do most of these things in places where um, people are going to um, be less, less empowered and it's going to have disproportionate impact on, on poor and, and potentially minorities as well. Uh, and I think that's, that's an empirical question. There's been lots of studies. The Institute for Justice has done an enormous amount of studies on this. Uh, they make a lot of claims that, that overwhelmingly these eminent domain projects turn out to, um, uh, to target, if not explicitly, at least implicitly, uh, low-income and minority communities. On the other hand, uh, if you think that public use is primarily directed towards um, uh, you know, blight, then there may be correlations uh, in some cases there. As well, so it's hard to know whether there's distributional consequences or the nature of economic redevelopment um, uh, is is part of this. But let's talk about compensation. So the U.S. versus Miller um, case is about what we mean by just compensation, right? And just to get to one of the punchlines, we generally use the term fair market value for just compensation. Right? And we talked about this a fair amount earlier, so we don't need to go over it again. That has a number of consequences. We're not going to provide people with their subjective value. We're not going to allow them to set the price. We're going to try and figure out some fair market price, which is, of course, a sort of 
um, uh, falsehood because you're trying to come up with a fair market price in a market where somebody's not actually selling. The other interesting point here and the, the main issue in the, in the Miller case is what's the correct time for valuing this property, right? So is it just before the, the project was announced or was it in 1938 when the, the formal papers were filed? And it's a little bit confusing, I think, to sort through, so I have a couple of diagrams. So this is sort of time zero. This is our first possible time. You have a, a river, uh, there's a railroad. Uh, this red uh, uh, plot here is, is where um, the, the property at issue exists, right? And for simplicity, I just have one lot here, right? So this is just before the announcement of the, of the reclamation project here. Um, and so this area is all sort of brushland. Uh, and it appears it's not even very useful for farming. And, it, and the jury thought it was worth well less than $850 at that time, right? Now, after um, the redevelopment plan uh, uh, begins, so the reclamation project begins, um, then it turns out that this is... That this area here is known as Boomtown, right? Because now it's right along the shores, or going to be right along the shores of a reservoir, right? And because of that, it's got a lot more uh, economic benefits. And this is at the time of the taking when they ultimately decide where they're going to put the railroad and they decide it's going to go through Boomtown, right? And is that the correct time? And that's the debate. Right? When do you value the property for purposes of fair market compensation? Because if you do it now, you get around $850 or actually less. And if you do it later, you get a lot more. Right? And should the property owners be entitled to the run-up in values that are the result of the project? Or are they instead um, uh, given the value that they had before the project was, was uh, sort of uh, formally announced? Right? And so... What does the court say? Which do they get? They get the run-up, Justine? I think they said before. Yeah. They get the, the less than 850. And why? I think they said it would be ironic if they get compensation due to the fact that Okay. Exactly, right? So that what the court says is the run-up here to the 2500 bucks or so is the result of the project, right? And it's not a doing of theirs. They didn't generate this funds, uh, these, these excess returns. Instead, they're just sort of lucky, and it would be a windfall to give them uh, the extra money as a result of, of uh, the, the overall project that caused the railroad to have to be moved, right? Is this, and so what the court says is that because... And it uses this, this argument because at the very beginning, even though the exact route of the railroad wasn't known, um, they, there, were a, there were plans that showed uh, this is a likely route. And because it was probably within the original scope of the project, that that's, at that point when they announced the project, even though they hadn't decided until later to, where to actually put the railroad, that because it was probably, meaning we think something more than 50%, uh, that going to be their land, they don't get the run-up in value. Okay? And so uh, that means that the correct uh, amount, that the correct timing for valuation purposes is the moment before um, uh, the land, uh, or before the project gets announced. Right? And so this is, 
you know, this is why the court sort of focuses on this probability uh, aspect, because they didn't know at the time, and that's the, the landowner's argument, is you didn't tell us where the railroad was going to go, so we couldn't have done anything in order to avoid the railroad. But the court says that you don't get that run-up uh, because, you know, your benefit is all entirely on the basis of the project, and because the project was going to cause uh, this uh, railroad shift, you don't get the right to get that additional value. So how many people think they've been fairly compensated here? Okay, you think they're all right? Good. Yeah, so the court is very worried that any different rule would encourage people to speculate, right? To have any rule that, that goes other than saying you get the, the value right before the project was announced. That, that any rule other than that is going to cause speculation, right? The fear here seems to be that once they, that the government announces the reservoir, um, and, and people think that, oh, the railroad's going to go here. People start buying up the eminent domain property, developing it like crazy, right? And then saying, oh, give me the high value, right? Is that, I mean, you think that's a legitimate concern? Are people going to do that? I, I think since we have so many examples of what speculation can do, yeah, you know, a couple years ago when I first wrote these slides saying what's wrong with speculation seemed like a totally innocent question, but yeah, it's a different <laughs> What could possibly go wrong with land speculation? So I think it's a valid concern. Okay, yeah, Jen? I agree. And one thing to keep in mind on this is you don't think of necessarily up front is that some people do benefit a lot from things like eminent domain because you don't have to go through the process of selling something. And in a lot of cases, you actually get more than what your property is worth. And like where I live out in the country, there's a lot of times where there's pipeline going through or electric lines or whatever, and the, the companies that are using your land do that. They have to pay for it. Sure. And I don't have enough land that would be beneficial to me, but my neighbors do. And like anytime something like that is happening, people come and bombarding with, hey, I'll buy your land, I'll buy this part of your land, and they're speculating on power line's going to go through here, and they're going to have to pay me basically rent for nothing. Right. And so, yeah, it, it's a real so, is, so another related question here is, what is your duty, though, to avoid, do you have a duty as a landowner to avoid developing your property if you think it's going to be taken? I mean, what if it's, it looks 90% sure? You don't know for sure, but it's 90% sure that the highway is going to come through your land. Do you build that high-rise office complex or not? Or do you think you have a duty not to because the government's going to have to pay you for that, that additional value? Right. So I think you can do whatever you want. So you would say, no, go ahead, even if you think 90% chance the new highway comes through this land, I can just go ahead and build. Won't that encourage people to just speculate like crazy? Yes, yeah, so but I think that they have the right to do that because it's their land. Okay. The government's already giving up on their property. All right, almost done, Eric. It's just 
cost of your time building something on the land, if you're going to just get paid for the value of it, it's Sure. Yeah, so you might, it might not really be a windfall to you unless Jaron's writing off and you get more compensation. But the question is, do you have an affirmative duty to not do it, right? I mean, Miller would suggest that as long as it looks probable that it's going to be taken, you're going to get the early value. So in some sense, you have, a, you, know, you have an economic interest to not redevelop, right? All right, so that's it. And we'll talk about takings uh, on Monday. Have a good weekend. And I will uh, see you then. I don't think I understood what you meant by, like, the holding is Kennedy's opinion. Who's, the fifth, who's the fifth vote? I know he's the swing vote, but then why would it be the holding of the case? So not so much the whole. Well, I mean, the question is, what is what's the rule? How do you analyze okay. the way the court would rule next time? Right? That's, that's essentially what we mean in the constitutional context about, about a holding, right? Which is, for the Supreme Court, the holding is whatever gets you five votes, right? So in order to win, you got to get five votes. So where do I get five votes? I only get five votes if I meet Justice Kennedy's opinion. So that's why it's, I mean, I guess you could argue about what holding means, but that is, that's the controlling opinion. Okay. In that case, because okay. he's the fifth vote. I was and he likes it that way. That's so funny. Okay, so, like, with Mrs. Kilo, couldn't you think of her as being a perfectly rational economic actor? Because, like, if you just, like, keep resisting settlements, obviously you're going to get more, more money, right? So, like, she shouldn't be condemned for being a perfectly rational economic actor, right? I mean... I don't think anyone's condemning her, but she clearly got more than somebody who sold out at the beginning, right? Yeah, because they didn't have the guts to resist, right? right? Oh, no, they're definitely one of the lessons from Kilo is that uh, the Mr. Kilos of the world should just resist, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> okay. that seems pretty clear, right? Okay. Um, also, uh, I have a follow-up 